Welcome to Recovery Devon Podcasts. We're a community interest company working to support mental health recovery in Devon. Our podcasts invite people with ideas of all kinds which explore mental health and what it means to be fully human. Episode 7. Men Reclaiming Recovery After Sexual Abuse This episode's conversation highlights the underrepresented topic of men's recovery following sexual abuse. We're joined by Ian, who courageously shares his lived experience of sexual abuse in adulthood, and John Slater, founder of Momentum, a Devon-based community interest company supporting adult male survivors of sexual abuse. Joined by Sammy, Golding and M. Flint from Recovery Devon, the group uncover why it takes time to process or even acknowledge what has happened and how society helps or hinders. Different recovery approaches are considered with a call for change in understanding and support. We've made every effort to make this podcast safe to listen to. Nonetheless, please listen with care especially if this is a subject that affects you. Hello, everybody. Thank you for recording with us today. Did you guys want to do a quick introduction for yourselves? Maybe if we go with Ian first. How are you doing? Hello, uh, my name's Ian. Just here today to discuss something that happened to me and the treatment I've undergone to recover from that. Thank you, Ian. And uh, John, hi, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you. Yeah, I'm John Slater. I co-run a support group for male survivors of sexual abuse in childhood and adulthood. And we're really just trying to develop in Devon a, a decent service for guys. It's uh, been a long time coming. Uh, there's still much to do. Thank you, John. And then you've got myself, Sammy and M here as well today from Recovery Devon. So there's four of us on this podcast. Like John said, today we're going to be exploring the topic of male sexual abuse, something that's not really spoken about that much, really. So I'm quite excited to be talking to you both today and, and, and putting something out there. So where would we like to start? Ian, did you want to like give us a bit of a background about your experience at all? Yes, yeah, certainly. I was 18 years old when the abuse took place and it was the first sexual partner that I was with, a female sexual partner. It was more, it was happened on more than one occasion. I had roughly about eight to 10, maybe at the most, 10 at the most. And it, I never really spoke about it because I didn't remember and suppressed all the memories of it. And it, it started coming out about a decade later. So quite a while after the event happened then. Yeah, quite, quite some time, yes. Uh, there was a few little snippets of things I remembered in, in the intervening years, but nothing major. I'd always get uh, upset and angry, frustrated with certain things that I always had an inkling that something was wrong or something was a bit different about certain experiences. And, yeah, that triggered some stupid things that I did in my personal life as well and just difficult to explain really through suppressed memories but there, I always had an inkling as did a couple of other people. So what led you to asking and reaching out for help and support with that? Uh, in a, a, a different relationship that I was in, the woman I was with then, she was fantastic and we're still very close now, we're still best friends now 
and she helped me through a lot of it or all of it and still helps me to the present day and we were watching something once and I turned to her and because there's something on, on the program we were watching reminded me of something that had happened and I said to her that happened to me and she she asked me what do you mean and I got up and ran out of the room and hid away and then she had to pick me up and put me into bed and I think uh, she realized she asked me the next day what was that all about and I just said I didn't know and I didn't really understand and I, I broke down and it just kept getting worse and worse and until I could really speak about it like I am now. Well, that's quite a journey you've been on, if you're able to talk about it now then. Yes, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's still difficult, as you probably imagine, but yeah, it's, it's getting easier. Yeah. Well, thank you ever so much for sharing your story with us. We really appreciate it. John, do you, do you find it a lot with the people that you talk to that um, there's quite a gap between events happening and people asking for support or... Um, like reaching out about it yes very much so um, i mean the uh, the average for men according to statistics is in the region of uh, it can be as much as 26 years for somebody to start reaching out for help as a result of sexual abuse and most men never do we, fortunately we live in a society when it's it's very difficult for men to disclose and uh, you know, I think sadly that's also reflected in the in the services that are, are on offer for men as well, and the social attitudes about it. So, the, and there's often a, a disconnection for a lot of men, including myself, in a kind of you you kind of know things happened. It's not that it's not known. I mean, for some people, it can be almost completely repressed. But you haven't. But you don't make the connection of what's going on for you with what happened. Often, when we reach out for help, that connection isn't always there. We might get told that we're having trouble because we've got a chemical imbalance in our brain or whatever. When we're actually dealing with human, you know, human distress, and uh, very often the signs of what's going on for us, whether we're struggling with behaviours uh, or we're dealing with alcohol, um, any kind of addiction, you know, it's, it's, it's often, if you like, they, they are the coping mechanisms. They are a means to try and deal with this. That's often just um, people want to put it into boxes, put it into symptoms um which makes it very difficult and and it's kind of a shame you know that you 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 have that seed put in you that becomes a problem as you go into adulthood in various ways and um that's not truly reflected on and understood and and i think there's if we think about it these experiences for a lot of people are, are crimes they're they're not illnesses and sadly they're kept inside the person by, the, by having them determined as, as an illness or a personal issue. Whereas really this is a public issue. This is a social issue. This is a problem in our society. It shouldn't be happening. I read uh, before this podcast, I was, I was reading up about a few statistics and um, I was kind of sat here thinking, do you know what? I don't, I don't know of any men that have experienced this and, how, how lucky is that, that I, I don't know anybody? And then I read that 96% of men don't come forward or report it or talk about it. And 
it got me thinking well maybe I do like maybe there are loads of people out there that that we we know personally that that we just haven't been able to support because they haven't been able to come forward and like you said it is a crime it's not an illness and yeah those that kind of use coping mechanisms that it then becomes about the coping mechanism oh you're you know you take drugs you're an alcoholic um without asking the question of what's beneath that i guess happened to me rather than what's wrong with me would be helpful the resilient woman said on a recent podcast about looking for what's strong rather than what's wrong i really like that and i know we're talking about sexual abuse of adults today i worked for childline for a few years and i had a colleague there who was a counselor um, who specialised in um, child sexual abuse. And she used to talk about the importance of the narrative around abuse and um, that some, sometimes there's a perception that somebody is abused, they disclose the abuse, rescue comes in, and the perpetrator gets their just desserts. And it's like this sort of box that you tie a ribbon on the end of it and it's all done and dusted. And of course, for the vast, vast majority of people, that's not how it goes at all. Yes, very much so. So if I think about when people are approaching us and what they're, what they're working with, what they're dealing with, I mean, for a start, there's very mixed feelings and emotions, feelings you're trying to deny, or you're worried they're going to you know, overwhelm you if, you if you try and deal with them. And very often people come to us and say, oh, yeah, you know, I guess it was a bit, but it, it was nothing really. You know, three days down the line, when you hear what happened, it's it's far from from nothing really. But there will be very mixed feelings. So people, in some cases, it might be very straightforward about the anger that they feel that this happened to them and what this person did. And then for for other people, it can be. But I I I was special. I thought they cared about me. And are there maybe they're feeling I did I didn't know this wasn't okay and um, I guess it, it wasn't and the and the problems as they've grown up and they've related to others and then they're starting to think hey hang on oh and I struggled immensely with the idea uh, it felt very much like it was my fault you know the little boy why did I let this happen why did it happen again um without being um able to relate to the idea of of grooming and how somebody very carefully works with you and then has ways to keep you quiet and so on. So there is an immense amount of, of different feelings going on and that makes it very difficult to to come forward or know how to work with it or even feel about it. And then if we then link that up with the social attitudes they might be might be wet with, it makes it it makes it difficult again. So there can be a lot of shame, a lot of embarrassment, and people can become very isolated with it and really not know what to do with it. And even when people ring us up or start to connect with us, you know, you need to build trust very quickly and you need to take things very carefully. It's very easy, you know, somebody might say nothing, they might want to say a lot, and then it's like, oh, thank goodness, you know, at last I've told somebody, great. Yeah, I'll, I'll see you at the next meeting. And they go away and you never hear from them again. And, you know, you can imagine they've gone away and then they've gone, oh, my God. And it's hard to cope with. It's hard. It's hard to be with. So yeah. it takes a, a lot of time, a lot of care. In as someone that experiences as, a, as an adult as well, 
what was kind of like your barriers of opening up to someone like was it a case of once you did there was there was relief or was it trying to find that right person especially with society I can imagine there being some kind of reaction that might have put you off talking to people I was just wondering what your experience with that was uh yeah I did try to when I had little snippets of memories come back I would uh, I'd quite often say something then but then when someone questioned me about it I would go back into denial and just like backtrack and and just say oh I don't know what I was talking about I'm almost like it's a it's a follow-on from the abuse as well it goes into a sort of gets ingrained into your head like the negative cycle of like no you don't deserve to be helped you don't deserve to have anything good happen to you and you start to believe that cycle instead of actually knowing that you do deserve help but you want help but you don't. It's, it's, very, it's a very confusing thing I did want to bring something up I have noticed uh, from personal experience it really impacts different areas of your life as well it's not just obviously you just possibly expect with uh, sexual abuse to to impact relationships and it definitely did that in my case but it also ended up impacting social life uh work life because some of the jobs i had i would be reminded of it and triggered from certain scenarios i know i didn't always understand what was going on then i'd uh, black out and have memory loss sometimes for hours and then come to and not know what had happened it quite often makes you doubt your own reality because you sort of, I don't know I just said about losing track of time I didn't know where I was I didn't know where I'd been and then all of a sudden I'm somewhere on one occasion I was 90 miles away in a, in a different town even in a different city where it, I turned up there I was stood at the train station don't remember getting there I now know what I was doing I was, I was in a in a flashback and I was trying to escape. I now know that, I didn't know that then. And when, at that time, when I came to the realization of where I was, I, I had a panic attack and had to be put back on the train home. That's the hidden side of it that people don't see. Because mm. people just assume that he's got a drink in his hand, he's an alcoholic, like, drug addict or- Yeah, all encompassing trauma. Yes. Yeah, it's really tough to have to move through. Yeah, so talking along the lines of toxic masculinity and reaching out for support was there any um kind of comments that you had when you did reach out that kind of um probably not the best thing to say to somebody if you had any examples I certainly have I was I told some of my friends and uh, ex-teammates because I used to play rugby and obviously that's quite a masculine environment and this this is just a few of the things that I remember them actually saying to me directly um, it's not that bad you are you are lying you're pretending it was your fault why didn't you fight back it's only a woman she's much smaller than you you were lucky you should be grateful you were having sex at all just that's just that's just a few examples of things that were said directly to my face about me after I'd opened up to them. What do you hear in the support group, John? Very similar things, I, I, you know, as, and I think, you know, quite a number, quite a number of the guys have been either abused by women or they've been part of the group of people that have been abusing them. And yeah, that very, you know, they would say, 
I wasn't lucky. <laughs> no way was I lucky. Um, there's this, and again, it's that, yeah, that masculine toxicity. And and I've found it. I I've been to uh, sexual sexual abuse and sexual violence forum with within Exeter, all the different groups getting together. And as a man to start with, I felt a little bit out of it. Um, it, it was very much of what I what I might initially term around feminist feminine issues, but actually what the people there were dealing with and what I was dealing with was masculine toxicity in in, in for both of us, whether it's to men or women. Yeah, yeah, a lot of it gets put down to what they'd describe as locker room banter as well. Yeah. That's that's a I, I've heard that used numerous times. In professional circles, you can find that as well, where, where people find it very difficult to to deal with. So, you know, often that pushback not to deal with the issue is is, is their own anxiety around it. Okay. And things are based on evidence shouldn't really be there. That's one of the difficulties is if I think a lot of training that people go through, it doesn't necessarily touch trauma and it doesn't necessarily touch sexual abuse so that that anxiety about dealing with that you know can come from a if this person discloses where the hell do i go with that because i haven't got any resources around that or anywhere to, to send them and how how do i deal with it how, how do i i don't know what to do you know so i think that training angle is is really important there was another thing i expect john could probably say more about this than me because it's not really relevant to me but i'd imagine there's quite a lot of men that doubt their own sexuality as well as a result yeah that's very common in some of the men we meet are settled and secure in their sexual orientation or, or identity and for others it's it's completely quite bewildering because of the experiences they have you know say if it's with a man was i abused because I'm gay, or am I gay because I was abused? When the actual reality, you know, it's like any other abuse, it, it, it's, it's, it's about power and control. It's not actually a, about the sex. That's one, of, that's one of the hardest thing. I mean, you know, with younger people, you, whereas what we're actually dealing with is abuse and the effects it has on another, another person which really isn't okay. So it can, you know, you can, you can have somebody that spends ages just trying to work out why they have the sexual feelings they have, where they are, and then it's really difficult to talk about them because it just feels so, so difficult to do that. And, um, and I think another thing that men can face, which also stops them coming forward, is, is this idea because a person is sexually abused, it's then going to make them a person that will sexually abuse. You know, it simply isn't the case. You know, they do not become dangerous because they've had that experience. So there's a lot of social attitudes out there that makes it difficult. And the whole point about the healing and how people need to, you know, can get sidetracked into those, into those issues very easily. I noticed as you were speaking there, John, that the similarity between the perception of mental illness as well, and that people who have had mental health issues are dangerous to others, when in fact they're more likely to be a danger to themselves or indeed to be more vulnerable to um, 
being exploited by other people. You know, every Halloween we have, um, you see a costume in the shops of the kind of lunatic asylum uh, person. And it's just this stereotype is perpetuated um, so heavily. Um, I'm really struck there by, by that comparison. And, um, and I wonder if, uh, you know, in both Ian and John's experience, if you think that mental mental ill health is a given after male sexual abuse or is it is that another stigma that yet another stigma that needs to be overcome well i'd i'd imagine it would probably be a higher rate uh, quite a high rate but people uh, the men wouldn't necessarily admit to it themselves or want or choose to admit to other people until it got to uh, like a breaking point and then that can either go a few ways where you get the help or or it sadly quite often ends up with male suicide which is one of the biggest if not i think the biggest killer of men under 40 in this country and i think worldwide as well it's a very high rate yeah so there's support out there for anybody that's looking for it and there's also um andy's man club in devon there is a group in exeter newton abbott torbay and plymouth Having, when we started the support group um, eight years ago, and we really started it because we couldn't get the support we needed from services, we, we often, uh, many, many of us have fallen in between services. So you might go to primary care, what might be called you know, dealing with depression and anxiety, and then people actually find, well, your, your issues are too complex for us to work with you, but then you don't find you don't meet the criteria for secondary mental health care um, because you don't have I'm doing quotes signs here you know a, a serious mental illness even though you might be hoarding you have all sorts of things are going on for you that makes it really difficult and in in the eight years that we've been doing this I haven't as yet sat with somebody where I've thought God, you're mentally ill and you're really dangerous. I have sat with people where I've been very concerned about the danger to themselves because maybe they're self-harming in very serious ways. They're just not able to cope. You can, you can see people diminish if the support and the understanding and the trust isn't there. If, if they're met with fairly bureaucratic ways of, of working they withdraw. Where can I be safe? Where can I be safe? If I can't be safe, will you take your life? That's, I mean, that's, that's, so that is the concern about helping people not to get to that point. And, and, that, and they can be very vulnerable. So if all your boundaries have been, have been broken and you, you don't know where you are with things, you, you can't make sense. There's a whole issue, but you know, do I trust people? Do I not trust people? So you can be over-trusting or you can't trust anybody. And all these things can lead you into situations where you can be exploited, you can be abused again. Um, even, you know, as we know with criminal gangs and things like that, where they may take advantage of people in, the, in those circumstances. But with, with some understanding around trauma, some care, some good human connection, because I, I th a lot of the, the issues will be around a sense of shame, which should not be the person's shame. It's somehow it's sewn into you and it is bad becomes I am bad. So there needs to be a way 
to come out of that isolation to be able to reconnect with people in a way that feels safe and trusting and caring so you can start to build life back it feels like such a complex thing to go through and and what i'm drawn to when you say about people needing that space to feel safe is where do they where do they get that because you need the support um coping behaviors have built up and built up wherever you are there is a recovery journey there is a recovery process from what has happened to you not because of you but but to you somebody else's actions and where do you go for that do you do you go to the police because it is a crime like is that where your safety is found or do you do you go to a support group um it feels like for so many people it's going to be such a different journey um that that kind of like toxic masculinity getting in the way of of where you go to ask for help you're right to use the word trauma because that's that is what it is and it can impact like we've heard from Ian it can impact the whole of your life it's not just one area it's and how do you get through that? Um, I'm wondering, Ian, if there was anything in particular that really helped you through your journey or? Yes, uh, well, the first steps I took was going to uh, the GP and I was put on a course locally. That was for self-esteem and that was a group course. And I, I took part in that. And then one of the ladies that was running that, I had some one-on-one sessions with her after I'd said something during one of the group things and ended up doing CBT. That worked quite well for a couple of years, and but then something uh, triggered it again. I ended up having to go back to the GP and go through the process again and getting moved up. Uh, I got moved up through the various stages of that and ended up doing a, a course of EMDR. That was amazing. It's, it's the hardest thing I've ever done uh, physically, emotionally, incredibly difficult for 48 72 hours you just feel drained but what is the best thing i've done and the hardest thing i've done at the same time ian what what did it take to stick with it willpower basically there were some moments where i actually had to stop during the uh, during the sessions but i built up uh, like resilience uh, through the treatment and managed to uh, get some men like in the right mind frame to be able to cope with what was going on during the sessions and afterwards. And I had a support network of people outside of the sessions that I could call. Um, uh, that's, that's basically, it's just having the right people there to support you when you need them and making sure that they understand the process as well that you're going through and the effects that it can have on you. What were some of the indicators during your therapy that it might be working? Did you have any little moments when you thought, oh, I'm, I'm spotting things are getting easier or not? How was it? Uh, yes, there were. Uh, <laughs> yes, my sleep was definitely improved. I used to suffer a lot with um, very severe nightmares and um, more often than not related to the abuse, uh, but also related to other things that had happened to me prior to that and afterwards which I also worked through in my treat EMDR treatment but yeah the uh, I noticed an improvement in the dreams they would become more positive and I would uh, start fighting back in my dreams but during the day I would notice things that used to upset me would become less upsetting over time 
and I could tolerate to be around certain people or hear certain names said. There's always a particular song from my past, which is always really upsetting, which basically at one point made me collapse onto the floor in a heap and in tears. And eventually that was, I can just about listen to that now. It's still difficult. It's still upsetting, but I can now listen to it. And part of the process during the treatment was to imagine that song being played um, in my head, imagine it um, and be able to go into my imagination in a way and slow it down, speed it up, pause it, rewind it, listen to every single lyric. And I oddly found myself humming it outside of the sessions and almost singing along to it. You know? And I, I went out one evening and I heard the song come on on a jukebox and I started dancing to it instead of, and I was like, oh, why are you now dancing to this song? You don't actually like this song. But I, I never would have done that before. And I, I sort of realised, oh, that, this treatment's working because I can now actually just tolerate to hear this when in the past it would have been completely different. Now that was a massive realisation. Sounds like you did a bit more than tolerate. Sounds like you've got full mastery over it. It's an amazing uh, example. No, no, I still don't like the song. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> it, it, I'm, I'm kind of in awe of, as you're talking, Ian, that just I've got this sense of you reclaiming some, the, some of the power back. And, you know, it might not feel like it for the whole of your experience, but the more you do it with those kind of things that that remind you or trigger you or um, take you back to that place, the more you reclaim that, the more you're kind of getting yourself back. I'm quite in awe that, that you have the strength to do that. It's, um, it's incredible. Thank you. <laughs> I always find um, writing to be particularly useful as well outside of treatment uh, just like keeping a, a diary of positive things that I've noticed that I've done just small things like uh, sorting out a bill like a bank statement or something like that paying a bill uh, buying myself some new shoes anything small and just like making a list of them and you look back I look back at them at the end of the week and notice that there'd be more positives than negatives and just and then making a note in a, on a different page and as a reminder to you can achieve stuff because it still get difficult days as, as everyone will do and does and just to remind myself that now you can do this you can work through stuff you have worked for a, a lot and just yeah, to keep myself positive emotionally it's you end up feeling quite often worse during the treatments and afterwards uh, like I said earlier on 72 hours sometimes and you just want to shut yourself away you don't want to be around people but it is hard it is very very hard and there's only a few people that really know how hard it's been I can't thank those people enough you've put in a lot hearing how much work you've put into your own journey and recovering from that is incredible and and your your story and your experience is going to inspire quite a lot of people I can imagine just the knowledge that actually the hard work can pay off if you stick with it and I, I hope that you are able if not now but at some point to feel really proud of everything that you've achieved because you have you have got yourself through it 
I'm really struck as we're talking about how much I don't understand about this subject and you know, just feeling so much compassion for Ian and his process and such um, admiration for, for John and his process and his setting up of momentum. Um, I was struck right at the start with the realisation that a lot of men who, who've been sexually abused as adults might not know that that's what actually happened and might not even be able to name and identify that that's what happened in the first place. So, so getting from even realising that that's what's happened through to disclosing it to someone, finding a safe place, having the courage to go through a process of, of recovery, um, you know, it's, it's a long journey. And, and I wonder if anybody listening to this podcast thinks, oh gosh, that might be me. That, that might actually be me. Um, what, what would anybody, John Ryan, say to, to that listener? You know, when I was a child, I, I didn't think, oh, I've been sexually abused. You know, that, there wasn't a concept, an understanding. There was always something there in my, my mind about it, which was obviously causing me a lot of grief, causing me a lot of problems, but I couldn't quite pin it down. So when I began to be thought of as somebody with mental health problems, somebody couldn't manage his job, he was stressed out, etc., and then escalated from, from there um, to the point where I lost my career. You know, you were still trying to, you're still trying to find a, a way to work out what was, what was going on with you. So it's, it's like, and I find this with a lot of other men, they know it, but they don't know it all at, all at the same time. And, and, and one experience I had was it was very difficult to get any support. And um, despite the fact I've been in psychiatric hospital and goodness knows what, at this point it was hard to get any support. And the, the GP managed to get a mental health graduate to see me for three sessions. It's not really much. <laughs> and there was talk about bipolar disorder. And he, he gave me, a, you do a book on prescription. Um, so he recommend I go to the library and read this book about bipolar disorder. And, and, and I actually, looking around, making sure nobody was watching, I actually picked up the book next to it, which was on recovering from childhood sexual abuse. And I just wondered, I just wondered, and I started reading it. And, I, and as I looked, I thought, yeah, that's me. That's me. That's me. That's me. Yeah. Blimey. So it came, gave some kind of credence to this idea in, in the back of my mind um, about what had gone on, really. And, that, and, so, and then it evolved from there. But I mean, you know, nothing else happened for another two years. <laughs> so I eventually, you know, and then I eventually managed to disclose to someone, mental health worker. Um, and even then, it, it, it took a while for things to happen. But, but the most important thing, I think, about that, mental health worker that I was with she didn't shut me down you know she she didn't immediately spring into action and get loads of support for me but she listened and she she didn't turn it down she she I felt like she under understood so in a way that was that was my first attempt to try and deal with it and that helped me try try again later on but I mean, I mean I mean a good example of how you can turn it on yourself is I remember early on in a, when I first went to a, to a group which which is so helpful to hear what's going on with you coming out of somebody else's mouth if if you like 
to know that you're not the only one and you're not isolated with this. Other people struggle with it the same as you. And I remember this guy saying, you know, he was abused and this happened and he got into this trouble and that and how awful a person I am and all the rest of it. And I'm saying, how can you blame yourself when all that was done to you? And as I said it, it kind of stopped me in my tracks and I thought, ah, me too, eh? <laughs> so that connection with, with, you know, fellow human beings that have, have been through that experience as well it can make such a difference to to how you i mean you talked about the idea of you know you have a narrative and i think i very much pieced together my story if you like and and, and it was a quite an intellectual process but what was missing was any feeling so i remember the art therapist and he, and he said john the one one thing you haven't managed to do is is to tell me what happened and he said you know do you think that's feasible to do that should we could we try that the next session and i did but when i did it it was like a shopping list i had no connection at all it wasn't till we started to do some painting around things after that that it felt like i was on the edge of a precipice and there was and i think for me a lot of the process which included the emdr is is around being able to connect to my, not just intellectually try and work it out, but be able to connect to my feelings and the feelings I have in, in my body and all the rest of it. And, and in what turned out to be a, a safe way where I wasn't overwhelmed, where I didn't have to deny everything, just very gradually stepping, stepping towards that till I realized I could hold these different parts of my life together without being completely blown apart but, but I know at the beginning of the therapy when we started getting near anything that was going to bring different you know that child and myself as an adult together it, it you know I felt under severe threat you know it felt like I'm going to die if I do this you know it was that it was it, it was that strong so yeah it needed people and I, I think you were just saying about the people that helped along along the way you know that you can't you know if you could do this alone you'd have done it years ago you know so it really is important that there are people around you that get it that understand that can work with you and of course you feel you know immense gratitude emotionally as well for that experience yeah that's um such a powerful process that you've just described there and i think um, I'm very biased as a movement therapist as well. I think that the creative process is one that, that is just, a, you know, so valuable during a, a recovery process, but the, having the ability to kind of connect the dots in a way that might not have words, you know, when we are at such a disconnect, like you have described, um, you know, we can feel it in our bodies that something's not right, but we, our, our brains are kind of, shutting off to it it's too traumatic to deal with or we're not ready um to expect ourselves to just put it into words can sometimes feel quite dangerous and quite overwhelming i'm really grateful that you had that experience with with somebody what came first was having an understanding of what trauma is 
because that they that gave me an you know I didn't know what the hell was going on with me. Mm. Uh, you know, I was told I was mentally ill, and I thought, yeah, I sure am, because I've no idea what's. But once I started understanding about trauma, then I started to think, ah, that's why that's happening. That's why I'm responding like that. So then that that gives you the hope that you can do something about it. And then the second part really is, you know, working this through doesn't purely rely on your intellect. It, it's about the feelings you have in your body, your emotions and being able to be with those and yeah, be yourself. <laughs> if you like, it takes time. Yes, uh, uh, sort of similar lines to John really is, uh, John was on about art and painting. Uh, I'm not artistic at all. And what I found very helpful was uh, was writing. I would write like little short stories, and I'd look down at them after a while, and I was like, "Oh, there's a theme running through these." And I look back at them from even before I had the uh, any treatment, and I after a while I started noticing patterns through them. Uh, why am I writing about this? Why am I writing about that? And now I look, I can look back at them now. And they make perfect sense to me now. Creativity sort of, it helps. It's just the way I can get how I feel physically and emotionally down on a page sometimes to a little story. It is always about me, but if you read it in a, in a different way, it just sounds like it could be relating to somebody else or something else. But it's, it's hidden. The context is hidden sometimes behind the words. So there's certain podcasts that I listen to that have been really helpful um online groups that as that i've joined as a result of that and the people in there i've probably opened up to just as or probably more than a lot of my friends and i've opened up to these people online and they've been a massive support to me but it's just nice to have that support network of a different slightly different kind of people that i've never really met to be able to share very important difficult subjects and to be able to discuss them openly is, is fantastic. When someone needs help, then guidance is something, even if it's like buying a house or, you know, if, uh, renting a car, buying a car, it could be anything like that. Uh, probably a couple hundred people and everyone just seems to get along. Yeah. That's where it helps in, in, the, in the support group we run. Sexual abuse can be in the room. It doesn't, you know, it's about healing, but it can be there. It doesn't have to be said. It can be said but it's okay to see it and you can mention it without everybody being aghast or wanting to run out the room, you know, when it's done carefully. Um, so I think that's, that's, that's a really important part of that connection as a group. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I could probably sit and talk to you guys all day about this, to be honest. I've, I have found this very interesting to chat about and um i feel like i have learned a lot listening to you guys so thank you ever so much for talking to us um just before we kind of wrap up i just want to ask if there is anybody listening that that's uh, maybe at the start of this journey or kind of starting to realize that maybe they've had this experience what would your kind of advice to them be what would what would you want them to take away from this podcast uh, just, uh, just advise them to, if they've got someone that they can open up to, friend, family member, even just someone that you know they might not know them particularly well. Sometimes that that can that can help. Uh, just just to do that really, and then 
seek uh, professional help uh, with the NHS or whoever it might be privately if need to be. Be honest and frank about it and don't hold back. If something's hurting you physically, you wouldn't hesitate to go and find help about that. So why would why should you hesitate to find help if it's hurting you mentally? Uh, it's 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 okay to get help. Cheers, Ian. And how about you, John? What would your advice to somebody listening be? I guess I would. You know, I fully understand how difficult it is to to know where to begin to disclose or how to work with it. Yeah, I I knew that for forty years before I ever said anything, uh, and I had to be in a pretty bad way for to to, to begin. But I think the important thing to remember is, yeah, making a connection somewhere about it, as difficult it is, is is the beginning of something. And and it doesn't all have to be done at once. And I think the other thing to remember is, you know, you might approach somebody, you think, and then the response isn't what you'd you'd hoped. It's shut down or it can't be, or they're not happy about that. Don't give up. Just try someone else just keep going you know make a starting point somewhere and you can take it at your pace you know don't feel i think that's one of the fears if i open up i'm going to be railroaded into this i think the important thing is you know people need to be working with you not at you at your pace and starting from where you are not where they might want things to be so just find one place to start and if you want to connect with us and make that the first starting point it's 0773 151080 0773 or you can te- if that's too difficult start with a text or you can email at us all lowercase momentum devon at gmail.com and there's no rush you've waited a long time thank you for listening if you have ideas which explore mental health directly or in imaginative ways perhaps you'd like to create our next podcast If you don't know how or don't have any equipment for recording, we'll do what we can to help. Simply contact us. Our email is community at recoverydevon.co.uk. Recovery Devon is a community interest company supported by the Devon Partnership Trust.